Early in the pandemic, it was clear COVID-19 would send some of Portland's most famous restaurants to an early end. Last call can come earlier than you'd like. But last week, one of the city's biggest restaurant groups abruptly imploded, and COVID-19 was only one part of the story. I'm Andrew Thien, and this is Beat Check with the Oregonian. Up next, the Oregonian and Oregon Live's Michael Russell talks about John Gorham's social media attacks on a trans woman of color and how it led the founder of Toro Bravo and its various subsidiaries, one of the city's most successful chefs, to shutter several of his businesses for good. We talked about Gorham's downfall and what it means in a city where several of the biggest names in dining more than a decade ago were white men who built their names and their brands on offering international cuisine. It comes amid a reckoning in Portland's food scene, where cultural appropriation is once again in the limelight, workplace culture is at the forefront of many industry workers' minds, and restaurants are coping with the pandemic and new social distancing guidelines. Here's that conversation. Michael Russell, thanks for taking time to talk today. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for having me. When Multnomah County first entered phase one, allowing for bars and restaurants to reopen with social distance requirements or accommodations, that kind of felt like the biggest story in Portland's food food scene. But now that no longer feels true. Can you talk about what's going on in the in the food world specifically uh, with uh, John Gorham and one of uh, the biggest names in Portland dining? Right, right. And it's actually kind of interesting that you say that because on the day that Multnomah County did enter phase one, I went out and sort of walked along Division Street and checked out which bars were open and mm-hmm. which restaurants were still doing takeout. And uh, uh, I happened to sit down at uh, Reelman Bar uh, on Division Street and opened up my phone and a reporter from OPB was listing all the huge news stories of the week that had been like the busiest news week in his memory or their memory. And uh, like the reopening of restaurants wasn't even really listed on uh, that list of stories. Like there was one mention of Multnomah County entering phase one, but nothing specifically about restaurants and bars, which is obviously the internet, you know, that's the industry that I cover. So Mm -hmm. um, it feels pretty important to me. Uh, But, you know, here in Multnomah County, uh, people didn't exactly, uh, restaurants didn't exactly rush to reopen. Um, a lot of places are waiting until August, uh, uh, when the extra $600 a week in unemployment funds run out. A lot of other restaurants are waiting until there's a vaccine. Um, people are sticking to takeout. Uh, so yeah, it's funny. It was like, it felt like it was going to be this big story and it kind of fizzled. And now we've all moved on completely. Um, and there is a, a, a really big conversation going on right now about, um, toxic restaurant cultures and uh, people are calling each other out on Instagram. And, and one of the major people that got uh, toppled by that conversation was uh, a guy named John Gorham. For people who might not know him, can you describe who he is, um, his place in Portland's dining scene, and then what, what, he, uh, what he did um, in recent uh, weeks and months here during the pandemic? Right. So Gorham... Um, was a pretty well-known chef uh, um, dating back to the 90s. Um, in the mid-2000s, he opened his own tapas restaurant serving Spanish food called Toro Bravo. And it was a like a monster hit uh, of a restaurant. Um, you know, it, it, had, it was very much in the uh, sort of restaurant of its time. There were small plates for sharing. Food came out really fast. 
there was no reservation. So there was always a line out on uh, Northeast Russell Street. And he parlayed that restaurant into uh, a restaurant group called Toro Bravo Inc. that had something like a dozen restaurants to its name, um, including this like really fancy uh, gastronomic society, uh, which was basically an event space in the Pearl District that um, just opened last year or just moved to the Pearl District last year. Um, la uh, in May, uh, uh, so you know, two months ago now, he got upset about some vandalism to his vans. Uh, he went online to complain about it and to suggest some vigilante justice action. Uh, a trans person of color saw those posts and got upset and decided to troll him. And he took the bait. They got into a heated back and forth. And one of the things that uh, he said to the trans woman of color was statement that uh, a threat that seems to be transphobic uh, in nature. And that led to a bunch of things. His immediate, immediately stepped down as the leader of the company. Uh, there was a mass walkout among employees once the nature of that transphobic comment was reported. Uh, eventually, as I reported just last week, they, the Gorums, John and his wife Renee, who had stepped into a leadership role, uh, decided to uh, dissolve the restaurant group completely. Um, so anyway, that's a lot. <laughs> it's a stunning series of events in a very short amount of time um, and is happening during this time when, you know, we've got protests uh, continuing for weeks and weeks and weeks now against uh, racial injustice and police brutality. And obviously his industry, uh, the restaurant industry, um, battered and bruised by these government um, lockdowns um, in the face of a pandemic. I mean, it's a lot to grapple with. Yeah, it's it's crazy. Um, John Gorm's anger issues are not unknown to people on the inside of the restaurant industry. I've never faced them myself, but uh, I've spoken with colleagues who've been on the receiving end, and I've since heard stories about him, you know, going off the handle uh, from other people. Um, and even his wife acknowledged that uh, in our conversations. The um, uh, so, you know, it's sort of not so, so surprising that he would have this kind of outburst, but it is kind of a moment in time where screenshots of his private Facebook messages with someone could end up, you know, basically destroying one of the biggest restaurant groups in Portland um, practically overnight, or at least, you know, in a week or so since they were revealed publicly. And what was the reporting process like on on uh, this story, Michael? Um, you know, a pretty unique story where you you mentioned the private private messages. Um, how are you getting information from both sides here? You don't often in your career get a situation where people on both sides of a fight are sending you screenshots of what the other people are doing. So I was getting screenshots sent to me from the Gorums, and I was getting screenshots sent to me from the trans woman of color uh, who who we agreed to um, uh, to protect her identity because of some of the threats she had been receiving. Mm -hmm. um, so that is kind of like the gold standard for reporting when you can get leaks from both sides, I guess. So that was interesting. Um, and then uh, oddly enough, the reaction to my big story that I wrote about it was really strong. And there were people on the right and the left that were uh, really upset that I didn't maybe tar and feather one side or the other uh, for their role in the situation. So I, tried to take Wednesday off. I happened to be biking around and run into, ran into a friend of a friend who I, uh, I happen to know uh, is an employee in the Toro Bravo group. And that person told me, hey, do you know um, 
that there's been a mass walkout of staff. And, uh, you know, within an hour of that, I was getting texts that um, the whole Toro Bravo group was closing. So I had to uh, uh, race home on my bike from, I was out in St. John's and uh, making calls on my phone as I went and like, you know, eventually got through to someone who had been at the meeting where Renee Gorham, the new head of the company, uh, told that, you know, about 25 employees that uh, they were dissolving the group. Um, and that was really interesting. Uh, she actually pushed back against that reporting in the Willamette Week, which I was surprised by. Um, and then other sources who were at the meeting reached out to me after that and said, no, you got it 100% right. Um, so yeah, this, is, this has been strange for me. I mean, I'm before the coronavirus, I I wrote about, someone said uh, uh, to me in a text, I miss when you used to write about uh, which, which sandwiches were the best. Like that was, <laughs> my job was like, I would do roundups of like the best food carts or the best burgers. So it's been a kind of a whiplash moment for me professionally here. What do you make of the kind of the, the worker revolts um, that you learned about? I mean, because this is an intense industry in normal times, right? Where you've got the, the, the back kitchen and, and people who, who are either working in the kitchen or working out in the dining area. I mean, it, this is their livelihood every night. It's pretty intense and especially a place that's, you know, high end and has a reputation to uphold. Um, so I guess what I'm a long way of saying when, when those people walk out, that says a lot. Yeah. And you know, I think some for some very loyal upper management, that was a very difficult decision, and people, you know, felt a lot of loyalty to the Gorhams. Um, this is we're talking about one of the more successful restaurant groups in Portland, um, Toro Bravo in particular. I remember, you know, I would go there every year for our restaurant guide, and I would always try to t- go on like a Tuesday because I thought it would be mm-hmm. the slow day. And I would, if I got there after like five oh five after they opened, I would find myself waiting for forty five minutes or an hour and a half for a even just a seat at the bar as a solo person. So, I mean, this is just in the past couple of years. So we're talking about a restaurant that absolutely packed in the seats night after night. They had maybe 10 other restaurants that were similarly busy. And uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty stunning. But I mean, it's certainly not the only restaurant group to be going through this. Like the Pock Pock owner, Andy Ricker, announced that he was closing all but one or maybe two of his locations in Portland, going down from, you know, a half dozen to one or two. Uh, and that was not because of uh, getting called out. I think he said he just um, it just wasn't financially uh, viable for him to continue. Uh, and I don't think it'll be the last restaurant group to fail, and it's certainly not the last restaurant to that will go under. We're hearing about um, you know the the news of restaurant closures trickles in every day. Yeah, and we talked about that um, at the beginning of of the pandemic, really about the effects and how some of the biggest names we've come to know and love or, or low, depending on, um, on, on your, uh, your particular tastes, um, how they might not survive. And here we are. Um, one of the biggies is not surviving, but really, uh, for completely different reasons. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I think there will be other announcements that'll be, you know, similarly shocking, um, just to, to, you know, to the diners out there, to people who are on the outside looking in, um, you'll say, oh, wow, that place was really successful. I can't believe they're going under. But, you know, it's just like three or four months of sustained, you know, business dropping by 60 to 90% uh, will do that for you. And then that's not even to mention the cocktail bars where, which are barred from selling cocktails to go by Oregon law. So they're not even allowed to sell the thing that they are known for, for takeout. Um, You know, 
it, it is interesting that when I did do that sort of crawl down division on the first Friday, um, I haven't really gone out to eat much personally other than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that was for work. Um, but I did see a lot of the bars were open, like doing their social distancing thing. And the restaurants were another story. The restaurants were sticking to takeout. So I, I think I joked in my story that the dive bars all open to 8 a.m., which I think is probably true. And, uh, and, and the restaurants are taking it slower. Um, but yeah, those, those bars were starving for income. Um, and it's not like every landlord out there is like, oh, yeah, yeah you can just have free rent for the next year. Um, so the, there's, there's just a sea chain ha- change happening in restaurants. It's happening both because of financial reasons and now because of uh, chefs getting called out for having you know, toxic workplace environments or, or for going online and going off the handle and, 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 uh, and you know, writing threatening comments towards someone. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a wild time. Well, let's take a break uh, and then come back and talk a little bit more with Michael Russell about uh, a Portland restaurant scene. Okay, Michael. So we've been talking about Toro Bravo and John Gorham. Uh, you also mentioned Andy Ricker, the extremely um, famous Portland um, brainchild, I guess, behind Pock uh, Pock and that whole empire. But um, when we spoke recently, you mentioned that uh, the Toro Bravo situation in particular hit on some persistent undertones in Portland's restaurant scene. Um, could you expand on that a little bit more? Um, Cause this wasn't just uh, an issue of uh, social media bullying um, or the pandemic. There's also kind of, there's an issue of appropriation at play here as well. Well, that's right. And this isn't even an issue that's really come to light too much yet, but um, a lot of the restaurants that made Portland's name in the two thousands were cooking international cuisine. So Pock Pock with Thai food, Tor Bravo with Spanish food. And I would say about five years ago, um, the cultural appropriation debate really started to fire up. And I think it would have been really hard for Andy Record to open Pock Pock in say 2015 instead of the mid 2000s mm. um, as, a, as a white chef cooking a food that's not his own. Um, Gorham, in Gorham's group, there are multiple Israeli restaurants that he opened with his partner, Ron Avni and chef Casey Mills. Uh, Ron is uh, uh, from Israel and uh, there is a ongoing debate about, you know, Israeli cuisine itself. Um, How much does it borrow from uh, the cuisines of neighboring countries uh, from uh, Lebanon or Syria or Jordan? And how much does it borrow, borrow from the food of Palestine? An occupied territory, right? An occupied territory, right? Yeah. And 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 you know, an oppressed people, and and that's maybe the distinction between cooking Spanish food and white people cooking burritos in Portland, for example. The question is, why are the top restaurants in every city in America that serve Middle Eastern food? Why are they all labeled Israeli? Um, you know, why are the why are the Lebanese restaurants in Portland considered mom and pops, uh, and they can't charge a certain price? But the ones that label themselves Israeli can, you know, are the hot restaurants and trendy. And and you know, it's it's an interesting question, and it's something I've been uh, rattling around in my own brain and not really sure how to deal with. John Gorham's story touches on that. His story also touches on um, the uh, police killing of George Floyd because he was out there calling for. Uh, vigilante justice against someone who spray painted his vans, uh, you know. And part of the George Floyd debate is, hey, let's cool it with the violence, let's cool it with calling the cops over a counterfeit twenty or whatever, 
uh, because that could lead to somebody dying. Um, you mentioned four or five years ago, uh, we had a moment um, where cultural appropriation in our dining scene kind of um, was uh, in in our newspaper and in other newspapers and kind of in the zeitgeist. Can you remind folks um, uh, some of those examples? Uh, you know, I, I seem to recall a, a colonial themed restaurant um, or named restaurant on, on Williams being one of the more controversial um, uh, right. entities at that time. And that was called, I believe, like the British Overseas Exploration Company. And it sort of was like this cutesy, you know, British colonially themed restaurant. And, um, of course, it was plopped down right in the middle of what had historically been one of Portland's most flourishing African-American neighborhoods. And it was really badly received. The other one that really blew up nationally was um, something called Coop's Burritos, which was a little burrito cart. It was only operating, I think, once a week or twice a week doing breakfast burritos. But the owners gave this really tone-deaf interview where they talked about going to Mexico and kind of spying on the ladies making tortillas and, mm -hmm. you know, right, stealing their recipes or whatever it was. And, uh, you know, that got people really upset. I, I think the argument there was, uh, you know, why isn't, uh, why isn't the money that these women are earning going to Mexican women who the, whose recipes they were taking? Um, and, you know, that's obviously kind of a, uh, a lightning rod, uh, debate that's right in the middle of <laughs> the culture right now. And, uh, you know, imagine a little one day a week food cart starting off that kind of firestorm, but that's, that's where we are right now. And I mean, we're two white guys talking about this, um, just for being transparent yep. here, but can you help explain to people why, uh, to today, the idea of Andy Ricker opening Pock Pock or, um, these burrito restaurants that we talked about, why that's, um, problematic, which is a word we hear a lot these days, or just uh, a little off-putting to, to people in the industry or people you talk to? Well, the idea is just, you know, uh, why, is, uh, why is the money from a Thai restaurant not going to a Thai person? And um, it is interesting that like our most prominent Thai restaurateur now in Portland isn't Andy Ricker anymore. It's a guy named Earl Ninsom, who actually is uh, uh, from Bangkok. And uh, we, it, 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 I, I don't know if that speaks to the transition between the 2000s and the 2010s, because Ricker is clearly still very famous. But, uh, you know, this is the argument is um, that, you know, white chefs have been profiting off of this food of other cultures for a really long time and that that should change. And Earl, um, we've talked about him and his um, incredibly successful businesses before, um, not just one right um it, as in typical fashion in this town if you got a hit they they keep on coming <laughs> yeah and, and earl loves to spot talent and give them a platform so he started with a really mom and mom and pop thai restaurant in st john's uh i think it's called thai cottage kitchen maybe i could be wrong about that and uh went on to open padi which is on 28th avenue in the back of that he opened this thai tasting menu restaurant which was one of the first uh, Thai fine dining restaurants in America, uh, along with Little Cerro in Washington, D.C. That was a massive, massive hit. And from that, he spun off two locations of Hot Yai, which is his Southern Thai fried chicken and curry restaurant, which is fantastic. And from there, he opened up Eam, uh, which was our restaurant of the year last year. And that was basically a mashup of the great curries he's been doing at his other restaurants, uh, uh, you know, new versions of those curries or new curries, I should say, combined with the barbecue from Matt 
Matt's barbecue, which is our top barbecue cart. Um, so then he actually was about to open a restaurant called Lazy Susan in Montevilla, which was going to do charcoal grilled food, sort of like a neighborhood uh, restaurant and grill. Uh, okay. I don't, and that obviously plans got put on hold and they started doing these like neighborhood cookouts uh, uh, a few days a week, just a week or two ago. So yeah, he's a, he's a big name too. And, and um, maybe, maybe uh, I don't want to say, I don't know, not as problematic or what, I'm not sure. Andy Ricker gets a lot of respect from some because he spent a lot of time in Thailand. He lives there part time and, right. uh, you know, studied the cuisine, but um, yeah, I don't, as I said before, I don't think he could open that restaurant as it was uh, today. You know, where does this moment go from here? Are there other, um, you know, reckonings occurring right now in the uh, Portland uh, chef and uh, food uh, community in terms of these issues we've talked about? Right. So the the big thing going on right now, at least for the restaurant community, is that um, there's uh, a chef named Maya Lovelace who runs a restaurant in Northeast Portland um, that serves fried chicken. Uh, She started uh, asking for uh, direct messages from people who wanted to talk about uh, bad behavior or toxic culture at their workplaces. And so people through the weekend, people sent her their own experiences and she screenshotted them, posted them anonymously. And, uh, you know, it's been a mix. Uh, some of them for me, again, as a white guy who's not in the restaurant industry, I've was reading them and thinking, huh, well, uh, this is, uh, seems like a ticky tacky HR issue. Some of them, felt like, oh, wow, that really stinks for that worker. That's, that's, and then other than, and that ranges all the way to allegations of some pretty severe crimes from restaurant owners. So the restaurant industry was, you know, watching that with rapt attention all through the weekend. Um, Maya uh, posted that she might be getting served for uh, 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 libel, and then she decided to stop posting the, those testimonies. So, uh, it's really interesting. Uh, the the list of restaurants that were called out included some of the biggest names in Portland restaurants. And yeah, I mean, those call outs are going to continue. And I think the people who are behind them, they just want the restaurant culture to change. And this is something that really never got talked about before now. And it's a really interesting opening to talk about the fact that, um, you know, the Portland restaurant culture in some ways has been really difficult for especially for women especially for women of color uh especially for trans people and they have they claim to have faced discrimination and you'll see anecdotes about that uh at all sorts of restaurant groups in town and um you know it's a really interesting time and i think the people who posting these messages really hope that uh they see a, a a big culture change in restaurants because of the what this call out that's going on right now yeah, when when you talk about um, being a very difficult culture, um, what what exactly do you mean? Do you mean a lack of opportunity, lack of um, upward mobility, discrimination, kind of all of the above? One of the callouts that really stuck with me, I tried to keep track of them. They were on Instagram stories, so they were disappearing, and I was trying to take a social media, um, you know, break for my own mental health over the weekend. So I was like checking in once a day. But there are other, you know, discussions of toxic management where you know a general manager or a or a top chef was allowed to create an environment that might be hypothetically like say racist or or homophobic or misogynistic and that person was allowed to stay in their job for a long time despite people complaining about it 
these are the kinds of allegations I saw by and large. And these are the kind of things that I think people would like to see change in the restaurant industry. And when we're living in a world where uh, the back to normal um, is not either feasible or um, sanctioned by, by government, um, it's an opportunity to take a look and maybe once we reemerge, have, have some different practices, right? Yeah, that's certainly what people hope. Um, we're, uh, we'll see what comes out of it. But, uh, you know, there's been a few public statements of apology or explanation on Instagram. Like, it's funny because this is all taking place in this echo chamber of Instagram. Um, right. And, uh, you know, I think that uh, for people outside the restaurant industry or people who aren't on Instagram, it's this strange bubble that, you know, that they're not even aware of. And for people who are in the bubble, it's everything they think about all the time. And it's the most important thing in the world. Um, but of course, if you work in the restaurant industry and you're thinking about going back into it uh, when restaurants reopen, you certainly don't want to go back into an environment where you're being you know, passed over promotion despite your you know, qualifications or, or being treated poorly because of uh, your sexual or gender, gender identity. Um, so yeah, I, I fully understand it. But it is a really strange time and we'll see how it how and when it kind of spills out over beyond Instagram. Before I let you go, I want to ask a little bit of, in terms of what you've seen out there um, in this uh, weird, strange new world. Um, what are restaurants doing to try to adapt uh, to social distancing um, guidelines? Uh, what have you seen out there and that stuck with you? <laughs> That's a good question. The, the kind of the, one of the other times that I went out, uh, um, this was, um, I, I visited a place called Palomar, and that's actually also on Southeast Division Street, but it's a Cuban restaurant and cocktail bar. They're really known for their daiquiris uh, and other uh, Cuban cocktails. And when they were about to reopen, they looked around their small Southeast Division Street ground floor space, and they thought, you know, we really can't uh, put enough uh, people in here to make it worth, uh, worth our while in terms of our bottom line. You know, bar seating is still actually not allowed because of the interaction with the bartender. Right. Um, so I don't know how many people they could have put in, uh, but you know, maybe a dozen. So the guy who owns the, uh, Palomar's name is Ricky Gomez. He reached out to his landlord and said, Hey, do you think we could put a few chairs on the roof and just start serving up there a few days a week? And, uh, the landlord was down. Ricky says the neighbors were down, uh, were, were okay with it. And, uh, so now you can go to, you can make a reservation for Palomar at noon each day that they're open. You can go up to the sixth floor. And you'll get a seat with this like pretty incredible view of the Tillicum Crossing and downtown Portland. And you can drink, you know, blend pina coladas and strawberry daiquiris uh, uh, to your heart's content. And you're, you're going to be separated from everybody around you by a lot of space. I mean, I think uh, when I visited, it was like seven feet between me and the next people on either side. Some of the tables have a dozen, you know, 12 or 14 feet between them. Um, so... Uh, what I'm seeing is Portland restaurants by and large taking things pretty seriously and uh, doing big separation between tables. And what about some of the, you know, daily nitty gritty stuff in terms of how people, um, you know, buy their drinks or <laughs> order their food? I mean, do you think some of that stuff might stick around uh, if, if and when we're out of this uh, in terms of online ordering and kind of no touch uh, payment and all that stuff? I mean, I think all the restaurants that set up e-commerce sites, there's no reason for them to take them down. Um, you know, if you set up the, the takeout system and you think it's working for you, I think that's going to go on for a long time. I mean, how long before we have a vaccine? Um, you know, it's going to be a while. So uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll just see, uh, 
we'll, we'll see how much of that sticks around. Uh, I know that a lot of the sort of mid-scale and up restaurants, they don't love to do mm-hmm. takeout because they want to present their food the way, you know, they want to really be able to control it. And if you put it in a box and send it home and with caviar with a person in the back of their trunk, it doesn't necessarily going to show up the way that they hope it will. Uh, so people say they're going to stick with it and, you know, we'll just see, uh, cases are, are still spiking in Multnomah County, uh, and across Oregon. And I feel like, uh, you know, no, nobody's really inching to like do any bigger, uh, reopening of restaurants. I mean, even when Multnomah County is allowed to interface to the restrictions and restaurants still remain largely in place. They just get to move their curfew back to, uh, midnight and there's a little bit of uh uh <laughs> there's a little bit of freedom to add like barriers between booths that didn't exist in phase one but i mean by and large it's the same and that was already projected to last until fall before the cases started spiking when do you think you will feel comfortable um sitting down and having a bite to eat or a meal with uh, your lovely wife to be honest we did it already um it was a little strange, but we went out to, we had a free lunch somehow and we uh, went out to Stomptish and had a, a little schnitzel and a beer. Um, so yeah, uh, it was fine. Um, the, uh, <laughs> the backstory there is our daycare reopened. So we now have uh, our days to actually work <laughs> instead of juggling childcare and working, which is great. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm not anxious to really get back into it full time. I think that going to Stomptish was just kind of like a, Oh my God, finally we can have a draft beer, uh, out in public and, and sit outside. But, you know, I, I realize that that's sort of a, an ethical or moral choice in and of itself because people do have to work and you are potentially putting those employees at risk for coming back. And, you know, there's a lot of questions around all of this and we're all going to have to sort of answer them to do our best ability. Well, Michael, thanks so much for, uh, explaining, uh, everything that's going on in the food scene right now. And, uh, we'll keep, uh, reading your stuff. Thanks, Andrew. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Beat Check with the Oregonian. If you like the show, leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts or tell a friend about the program. We'd appreciate it. You can support this podcast and our local journalism with a subscription to Oregon Live. Go to OregonLive.com slash pod support and check out all of our past episodes anywhere you listen to podcasts. Until next time.